Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter this morning. I know we're picking up kind of in the, in the middle of that first section. We ran out of time to, to complete um, that first section last week. So I'll probably move back a few verses and just read um, beginning in verse 10 when we get there. But Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll read verses 10 through the end of the chapter. But the Lord uh, preserved me from a lot of heartache by keeping me single throughout high school. Um, it, it wasn't for a lack of interest, I have to admit. Uh, maybe on, on the part of others, but not on my part. Um, I do remember somewhere near the end of my sophomore year uh, talking to a girl that I was interested in getting to know better. And uh, she was sharing with me her excitement about going to summer camp because it always brought her closer to God. And so I, I asked her uh, why she felt the need to wait several months for summer camp before drawing near to God. Um, the conversation abruptly ended, and I'm pretty sure that was the last time I spoke to her. And Again, the Lord was, was preserving and protecting me, I think, uh, by my own tactlessness. But I had grown very skeptical about these mountaintop experiences. Maybe you've heard of these, this phrase, right? In, in, in the years that I belonged to junior high and high school youth groups, and, you know, we talked a lot about these mountaintop experiences and getting away sort of where you have a time to just devote to the things of God, you're engaged in conversation with others, you're regularly singing together, you know, you wake up, you have breakfast, you hear a devotional, uh, you, you sing, you play, then you go back here, another devotional. I mean, there's just constant spiritual activity taking place all around you, and you kind of get away from the noise and the chaos of the regular day-to-day -day activities uh, and just focus on your spiritual life. And they are generally characterized by these deeply emotional responses that include oftentimes professions of faith and repentance or even rededications of your life to God. Oftentimes that was what it was about, was rededicating your life to God, which occasionally sometimes I'll reference is what we do weekly when we take the Lord's Supper. You know, we're recommitting, we're recognizing publicly that we belong to him, he belongs to us. So the problem I had come to learn over the years was that for many people, those responses were short-lived. We call them mountaintop experiences because they feel like they're life-transforming encounters with God, and yet as soon as we get back into the valley, they begin to fade. And so I may not have been the most tactful Christian in high school, but I do think I was right on this one. Um, Nehemiah seems to come full circle in this chapter. He, last week we saw how he appears to admit his own guilt in being involved in the corrupt lending practices that were taking place in Judah. Uh, we see that in verse 10. But here we find him entirely generous, the description of him in the latter half of the chapter. 
is about his generosity. He doesn't accept the benefits that were afforded to him as governor because of the undue burden that it would have placed upon the people. And so we see a radical transformation in his heart and in his life, the way he practiced um, his faith. Not only do we see Nehemiah's own repentance in this passage, but we see a similar response from those that he had just rebuked for their greed. And so unfortunately, it is all too common for the people of God to pay lip service to the spiritual purposes of God, right? To have these emotional reactions of faith and repentance that are really few and far between. And then when we have them, they're short-lived. But unlike mountaintop experiences, repentance is to be a way of life. The fruit of true repentance should always characterize the believer's walk with God. It's something that we should always be working on, something that we are always seeking the Lord's uh, grace and mercy in our lives to forgive us of our sin and to give us this desire after new obedience. So we'll talk about that, the implications of repentance this morning. But before we read the passage Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what your word is intended to do for us as believers, that we are not just reading it to fill our minds with some new knowledge. Lord, your word is powerful. It is meant to bring conviction of our sin. It's meant to stir up our faith to love and good deeds that we would obey your word. We would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. And so, Lord, even as we sit under the preaching of your word, may your spirit cry out to us, Lord, and our spirit, that we would be receptive to hear what we need to hear, that we would be moved and transformed by your spirit that you would be glorified, and that we would be edified. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me, Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. This is where he begins really acknowledging his own involvement in the lending practices in Judah. He says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowed 
uh, the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved in the work of this or persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my, ex at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first thing we'll see as we wrap up this section in the first part of the chapter is from verses 12 and 13, the promise of the rich, the promise of the rich. Possibly this is the most remarkable aspect of this passage is the way that these social elites respond to the accusations that Nehemiah brings against them. They actually had consciences. They felt conviction for sin, and they admitted it. God had apparently softened their hearts to respond to Nehemiah's rebuke with complete agreement. Not only would they restore everything they had taken, but they would cancel the debts as well. They would not ask for anything more. And Nehemiah doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't just stop at their promise to do these things. He calls upon the nobles and officials to take a ceremonial oath before the priests. He calls the priests to be involved in this. Come before this assembly, this gathering of the city. Come before them as priests and, and give a ceremonial oath so that they are taking that oath before the people. And he doesn't merely take their word for it. He ensures that the whole city understands the promise that had been made. And so now they are socially and religiously accountable to follow through on their promise. This is one of the values of the community of believers gathering together. This is a grace to you. Right? Oftentimes, it sounds countercultural today. We don't want accountability want nothing to do with that accountability, but that is how God preserves you. God has given you the gift of leaders who care for your souls, and, and that involves accountability. Let them do that joyfully. Beyond that, Nehemiah calls a curse upon them. This this is a pretty strong language. Right? He calls a curse upon them should they go back on their commitment. He actually grabs his garment where it has been folded over, and it's believed that there was some kind of uh, folding of the garments that was done in such a way and you know, tucking it into the belt that creates basically a pocket for them to carry things, sort of like an ancient fanny pack right, that they would, they would have right there built into their robe. And then they would... He, so he would take that and he would unfold it, 
so that everything, the, all the contents would be emptied out. They would be shaken out. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so he so may he be shaken out and emptied. And so he gives them this physical demonstration by which they might see the curse that he has called upon them. May these nobles and officials lose their homes, lose their jobs, lose all sense of respect from the community should they, fall, should they go back on their word here. He's not going to let them off the hook. Once again, the people responded with agreement. In fact, all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. That would include these nobles and officials within that assembly. They're all saying amen. Amen to this curse that's been called upon us. This is a picture of true repentance. And not only were they correcting the physical wrongs that they had done against their neighbor in their promise to restore everything they had taken and not demand anything more, but they also recognized their spiritual sins that they had committed against God. And so they praised the Lord in response. They're so convicted of their sin that they praised the Lord in response to a curse that has been called upon them. They agreed with Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. They understood that Nehemiah that his rebuke upon them was justified. In other words, they were convicted of what they had done. Not just because Nehemiah was really gifted in the way that he convicted them, in the way that he rebuked them, but because the Spirit was at work in their hearts to bring them to a place where they could admit their faults and not only respond in, in correcting those faults, but offering worship to God should they go against their own promise? Should that curse become true of them? So they understood that Nehemiah's rebuke was justified, and so they promised to correct their injustice, and then they followed through, and they did what they had agreed to do. So we learn a lot about repentance from this passage, not only in this, these verses right, right there in verses 12 and 13, but from the latter portion in Nehemiah's example. What we learn is that it begins, repentance begins with a readiness to accept a true sense of our sin, to acknowledge our corrupt nature, the offense that we've caused to a holy and perfect God begins with a readiness to accept that true sense of sin. Not minimizing it, not, not comparing it to others, saying, you know what, well, at least I'm not as bad as my neighbor. Or yes, I know I do the same thing as my neighbor, but it's maybe not as often. It begins with this, this true acceptance, a true sense of our sin, and then it concludes with a full purpose toward new obedience, toward a, a new direction, a turning away from sin and a turning toward God. Being good at repentance is not the goal in the business world. 
You should not follow Nehemiah's example when you get the most dreaded interview question. What are your greatest strengths and weaknesses? Instead of admitting your weakness, you should, you should couch in, lang- in language, right, that, that makes it sound like it's really another strength or that it's just another side of the same thing, right? The best answers go something like this. I have, I have to say that my greatest strength can also be my greatest weakness, right? Because I care so much about success, I can overextend myself in my professional career, and that's how you're supposed to do it, right? You couch your weaknesses in the context of a strength so that the person listening to you doesn't think, oh, no, that's not, a, that's not a problem. We want you to do this. We want you to give yourself more fully to this work. Right? Unfortunately, that tends to be our approach with God as well. Right? We, we know we should repent of our ongoing sinfulness, but we either downplay the depths of our sin, at least I'm not like so-and-so, or we minimize what repentance entails. We say, well, I do repent all the time. I, get, I keep saying I'm sorry. I say that all the time. That's not repentance. That's a component of it. Repentance involves much more than simply feeling sorry for what you've done or feeling sorry for being caught. Repentance involves this turning away. And so we've used sin as something that we, we, we learn to just live with it. Well, I'm like everyone else. Christians have a reputation of loudly chastising the world for its open immorality. And I would say rightly so. We should chastise open immorality, but unfortunately, oftentimes, we do it while indulging in secret immorality. For instance, we express a righteous disdain for same-sex attraction in public while coddling a growing addiction to pornography in private. For Nehemiah, it seems the danger was rebuking the love of money in the context of Jerusalem while justifying his own greedy practices of lending. We don't know the extent of his sin, but we know our own tendency toward these same things. To have a a reputation for outwardly rebuking those, but then inwardly manifesting similar kinds of sins in our own heart. Whatever your situation, the solution is not to go silent about all sin. All right, well, then I'll, I won't be a hypocrite about it. I just won't talk about sin anymore. I won't be that judgmental Christian. No, it's not to, to go silent about sin, but it's to recognize your own guilt and to own that, to be honest about it. That's where it started for Paul. He continued to do the evil that he did not want to do, he says in Romans 7.19. Repentance begins there. It wasn't until he cried out for deliverance through Jesus Christ that he then declares in the next chapter, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, what he's saying there is that God accomplished for us what we did not do for ourselves in order to fulfill in us what we could not fulfill on our own. The gospel is perpetually relevant. Therefore, repentance is a daily practice for the believer. When the Holy Spirit provides us with the combination of a true sense of our sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God that's held out to us in Christ, we will be filled with a growing hatred of our sin and an increasing endeavor after new obedience. And that's what we'll see in the life of Nehemiah. That's exemplified in the next section, the example of the governor. So the promise of the rich is followed by this example in verses 14 through 19. Nehemiah uh, became the governor of Judah in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is the first mention that he, was, that he had become the governor there. Um, this was also when the king, that's the same year that the king sent him on his mission to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. So at some point during that first year, he's appointed governor, if not appointed governor beforehand, and we just are now learning about it. But I, one way or the other, in that first year, he, he goes and he accomplishes that mission and becomes the governor. We know the, the building of the wall only took 52 days. We'll see that later on in the book. And so it's very possible that he completed that work, went back uh, to Artaxerxes, who then said, now that, now that you've got a city to, to, to govern, why don't you go back and do so, right? Be a part of the leadership in that location. So he'd served in that position for 12 years, we know. So Nehemiah is now reflecting upon that overall period of time, those 12 years as governor, showing how he's exemplified the generosity that he's calling the nobles and officials to show at this point. So this reflection is intentionally inserted here. It's, you know, most of Nehemiah is following along this chronological order, but this one is, is sort of him saying it's appropriate at this point for me to insert in this chronology an example of how I practiced what I was declaring to them. The, the rebuke I was giving to them was a rebuke that I myself received, right? that I, that I uh, followed through on those same promises. And so we might consider it like a footnote or a parenthetical statement in this book, Nehemiah was unlike previous governors who had added their own taxes. Uh, governors were primarily there to make sure that the king received his tax. And so they had to collect, they had to be in charge of making sure that tax was collected, but then they would add to that tax their own needs. So they would make sure that their, administra their administrative costs were covered. Uh, that any local projects that they wanted to do would also be covered. And so 
If they wanted to do something new, they would just increase the tax upon the people. So Nehemiah distinguishes himself here from the former governors that they had. Before Nehemiah explains how he acted, he distinguishes himself from those governors and he describes what he didn't do. So he highlights his refusal to take a food allowance from the people that was generally allotted to the governor. The governors received gifts of food and drink and they could use that to then host extravagant parties for the uh, social elites. Nehemiah is, is practicing that, we'll see in a little bit. He's, he's feeding 150 people at his table, but he's not doing so in the same manner that the previous governors, who would have taken 40 shekels of silver. Now, this doesn't... This is not likely 40 shekels of silver daily from everyone, right? It's probably a reference to the cost of the meal that was provided daily. And so 40 shekels of silver, uh, either that's the cost or it's maybe talking about the annual um, tax that was added uh, to the people in Jerusalem or in Judah. So it's this 40 shekels of silver in, a, in addition to or maybe for their daily bread and wine ration. We, we can't be sure. It could just, he could just be emphasizing that on top of the regular tax of food and, and wine, they also added 40 shekels of silver. We can't be certain exactly what's in view, but it's an exorbitant amount of money that they couldn't afford, which is why they were having to lend money to one, an, one another and having to mortgage off property and eventually even enslaving their own children to pay for the debts that were mounting. So every governor has this entourage of servants, and they were prone to even allowing their servants to be enforcers of these taxes, right? To, um, to lord it over the people. And Nehemiah distinguishes himself there as well, ensuring that his servants treated the people with respect he, didn't, he did this because he feared God, we read. The fear of God led Nehemiah to a love for his country and his fellow countrymen. Those officials who mistreated and took advantage of their citizens had no fear of God. And so the same reverence with which we enter into corporate worship is the reverence that leads us to conduct ourselves lovingly towards others. It's a fear of God. It has fruit in our lives. Next, Nehemiah provides examples of his generosity. In verse 16 and on, moving forward, he says, that his servants were working on the wall with the people rather than devoting their attention to the duties of his governorship. Nehemiah's administration didn't acquire land because their interest was in the preservation of the people, not personal prosperity at their expense. And we don't know if they're talking about just being interested in expanding the territory of Jerusalem or Judah, or if it's meaning that they didn't acquire land from those who, who could no longer afford right, to, to pay the taxes, and so they would 
essentially take over the land as payment. But he says, we didn't acquire land. Whichever one he's referring to, maybe both. We didn't do that. Not only was Nehemiah generous in the use of his and his servants' time, but he was hospitable to a large group of Jews, officials, and foreign dignitaries in verse 17. And it wasn't a cheap meal that he provided. Right? He served the best food available at his own expense. He wasn't governing them to further his own reputation, but he was sacrificially serving them and promoted their good. So some scholars have questioned at the end here whether Nehemiah's statement reveals maybe a prideful or self-congratulatory spirit. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And they kind of are critical of him at this point. Was his motivation to receive some personal favor from God? Was that why he was so generous? I think it's easy to, to point out or to find something to criticize if you search for it long enough. We might like to think that we would never say something like this in prayer to God, but it reveals really our own proneness to a false humility. And maybe you think that Nehemiah should have, should have said that he did all of this for God's glory. And since he only mentioned his own good, we question his motivation. Well, Nehemiah concludes the book in this same way. He says a very similar prayer in chapter 13, verse 14, 22, and 31. Multiple sections of that chapter. After mentioning several reforms that he instituted during his time in office, he says, remember me, O my God, for good. And so these are, these are not self-congratulatory prayers. He's not patting himself on the back here. The Lord knows his heart. He is acknowledging the fruit of a sincere faith. And he's entrusting his work to the Lord, even though at the time that he's writing this, there's probably not a whole lot of evidence in front of him that his labor had fruit. And that the work that he did had results in the community. And so he boldly says, I did what you asked me to do, Lord. Remember me. It's, it's a bold prayer to be able to acknowledge that. It's one that we should long to be able to say in good conscience. And this passage reveals the importance of generosity. It's, it's something a leader promotes from his office and also exemplifies in his lifestyle. And something that I have consistently witnessed since being in pastoral ministry is the tendency for the most generous people to be those who are the most unassuming and the least demanding. I, I was genuinely, genuinely surprised by this when I entered into ministry. I, I had always assumed that the biggest givers were going to be the ones that I needed to highlight or put a red flag by because they're going to be like political lobbyists always trying to convince me to do something different or to change right, the practice of the church and the pattern of the church. And so I, would have, I, I, I had that thought and anticipated that. I'd have to be on guard around them, anticipating that they had some agenda behind their gift. 
And I'm happy to say that I could not have been more wrong about those assumptions. Generous people do not only give freely of their treasures, but they are the first to offer their time and to give their talents as well for kingdom purposes. We see that every time we open up the church for a work day. And in fact, I would say it's rare to find someone who is generous with their money but stingy with their time. Generosity is something that characterizes believers in God's word. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the gift of true repentance results in a generous character. Are you generous with the resources and talents God has granted to you? How might your generosity increase for his glory? Repentance involves honestly assessing areas of ongoing weakness and seeking the Spirit's work in transforming that weakness into a strength. And so a lively faith is always accompanied by a fruitful repentance. Generosity doesn't have a percentage attached to it. God doesn't set the bar so high that you continually fail to clear it in frustration. He simply says to give cheerfully, not reluctantly. And so there's no higher motivation than the gospel of grace. Where does Paul go in 2 Corinthians 8, 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then later on he says that the same grace is sufficient to reveal his perfect power in your weakness. And so it's a power that's vastly superior to any of your temptations. Which means that it doesn't have to be short-lived. It can transform your life and daily characterize your life as a believer. So bring your sin before Christ in honest repentance and receive the life-transforming grace of a generous Savior. And see what God will do in your life from there and give him the glory for it let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word and we thank you for this challenge lord it's it's easy to uh read about nehemiah rebuking others and to sort of disassociate it from our own needs to kind of think that it has nothing to do with our weaknesses or our failures we can quickly point out the greed in others while we harbor a private or a secret greed in ourselves. Lord, forgive us if that is our mentality. Forgive us for being so bold in rebuking others and, and so weak in crying out to you for our own needs and bringing our own sin honestly before you admitting our desperate need for the spirit to do a work in our lives to transform those weaknesses into strengths recognizing our need to 
change directions, to turn away from our sin and to turn to you. Lord, help us to have a a better understanding of repentance, that we would be reminded of this passage and the example we see in Nehemiah, and to not be ashamed of acknowledging the work that your spirit is doing in our hearts so that it might be our testimony to say that we did what you called us to. That ought to be our goal. And we recognize that the purity of your church does bring you glory because it acknowledges the work of Christ in our lives. And so we pray that we would respond in obedience to your word. Help us to not experience short-lived repentance, but to be changed. And to look forward to the inheritance that awaits where we won't be tempted anymore by greed. But we will long to give you all of the glory that you're due. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn. In response to the preaching of God's word before the throne of God above, hymn number 227.